Hi, everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Roots to STEM podcast, a podcast where we talk to scientists about the path they have taken to get where they are today. I'm your host, Stephanie Katie. On today's episode, I talked to my friend Nora Moskowitz, who is a PhD candidate in the biology department at Stanford University. In our conversation today, Nora tells us about her path from flipping over logs to look for little critters as a kid to studying poison frog diet now that she's a PhD candidate. And we spend a lot of time talking about mental health in graduate school. Nora provides some really practical advice for how to take care of our mental health, and I think it will be applicable to you whether you're in grad school or not. So I hope you enjoy hearing Nora's story and get some valuable advice along the way. Hi, Nora. Welcome to the Roots to STEM podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Okay, awesome. So let's start out at the beginning by just, can you tell us who you are, um, what your job is, and what your research is about? So my name is Nora Moskowitz. I'm a third year PhD student in Lauren O'Connell's lab, and I study poison frog diet. And the reason for this is because Although we know that poison frogs can't make any of their toxins by themselves, um, they have to get them from the food that they eat. So we know that their bodies have adapted to take up these toxins and save them for later. But my question asks if there's a behavioral part to this. Does the frog actually have a conscious choice in whether or not they're eating toxic versus non-toxic food? Cool. And what do you think? is the answer. Oh, I think that they are choosing um, more toxic food just because, you know, the toxins that the frogs eat, most animals can't really deal with. They would make them sick. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that since we know that if actually in lab settings, we feed these frogs too much of these kinds of toxins that can hurt them, I imagine that there's some feedback in that maybe if there's too much toxin in them, they're not going to be eating a ton of toxic food and Maybe if there's not that much of it, they are more likely to eat some. But uh, the real truth, the truth of the matter is that I have no idea. <laughs> and, All right. Um, yeah. So stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, stay tuned. But that's what I, I think they're choosing some things. Should I? Yeah. So what got you interested in working with frogs? Like, have you always been interested in frogs and snakes and reptiles and stuff? Or is this a new thing since your PhD started? Or That's an interesting question. So uh, actually, I feel that I'm quite lucky to say that I've always been really interested in reptiles and amphibians. And part of that is due to the fact that my parents, you know, encouraged me to foster that interest. But really, there's, I've been really interested in frogs ever since I, I first saw one in person when I was about eight years old. Having grown up in New York City, there's not a lot of frog ponds around. So mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to be at my aunt's house in Vermont and I saw these things for the first time and I thought wow these big animals that are just so interesting to watch they're so different from us and I can catch them and they're not going to hurt me and I'm not really going to hurt them um and I just I just I don't know what it is I just really I just was really have always been drawn especially to amphibians and I grew up having pet snakes so uh it really never went away and I knew through watching some documentaries and things like that as a kid that there are some people out there that focus on this thing for their job but I wasn't really sure where that brought me so I just tried to keep doing what I liked and uh I I ended up here studying frogs which is very fortunate in my yeah (laughs) so you mentioned that your parents always like encouraged this for you and so what do your parents do are they scientists 
So my parents actually aren't scientists. My mom is a portrait and landscape artist. She paints with oil paints and that's what she does professionally. And my dad is a singer and piano player and he does that professionally um, at a, a couple restaurants and bars in Manhattan. Um, uh, not recently due to COVID, but generally that's his job. And so mm -hmm. what my mom taught me is something that I think is really the core to being interested in research and finding a field, which is just how to intrinsically appreciate nature. Mm. Um, so she is the person that told me, hey, you should roll over these rotting logs. We're going to find cool stuff under them. And I mean, I had no idea that a salamander could live in New York City, but it turns out that they do. Yeah. Um, and so it was that sort of thing rather than a career that was fostered. It was more of the passion, which is, I think, that was the right, that's kind of the, the strongest way to go for a kid because it's easier to follow a passion than a, a research position. Okay, so I'm curious if you could talk about what was your trajectory like between, you know, eight-year-old Nora in Vermont looking at a frog <laughs> and now Nora as a PhD student. <laughs> so I think both thinking about if there were things in high school or even middle school maybe that you did that really stoked your interest in science. And then also we can talk about um, your experience in undergrad too and working and we can move on. Throughout. Yeah, sure. No, I think, I think these are great questions because um, all those things do matter. I would say um, I probably was a little bit cagier about my passion for this sort of thing in middle and the beginning of high school because it wasn't necessarily the coolest thing to talk about all the, mm -hmm. all the slimy animals that you love, which, you know, I still love them all. But... I think, well, actually, one really magical experience I had was I, there was a local scientist on Staten Island named Seth Walney, and he leads a lot of nature walks, and he was leading a, a nature walk um, about, actually, it was to show the horseshoe crab breeding on a, on a local beach in Staten mm. Island, and I remember being about 12 years old going and just seeing these piles of um, baby, of, no, rather, adult horseshoe crabs mating, um, and I just remember thinking, even though I was 12, oh, you know, I should really start thinking, I should start thinking about science more. I should start thinking about, because it had felt like, you know, you get involved, you get all absorbed into the middle school life. And I, I remembered, this is something I, I really, really like, and that I think is special, because mm -hmm. middle school wasn't easy. I, I had to switch classes because some people were problematic. And, you know, and this, it's one of those things that helped me stay grounded in terms of knowing who I was and stuff. And, you know, maybe there'd be some friend issues, but I would always have the forest. I would always have the ocean, things like that. Yeah. Um, so I think like making sure to, to just keep going on little walks and even though it was New York, just keep flipping over those logs. And I think the other thing is that in high school, I also felt that I had a, a very, very good biology teacher. She was tough on us, but she taught us how to study and work really hard. And um, you could tell that she believed in us and um, mm. she basically helped us take biology seriously. And, you know, high school was hard and that was really the joy in my day, even though it was at the very end of the day. Of course, you know, I happened to like the thing also because I was good at it, Right. but I yeah. genuinely enjoyed it. It was just so interesting. And she, her believing in us and encouraging us and treating us like, like little, 
you know, like we were little adult students, like we were right. really trying to learn. Yeah. Um, like she made it clear how important it was. And I think that really helped. So big shout out to Karen Obert. <laughs> yeah. I actually just saw a paper today that was talking about um, essentially how impactful it is for students to have a teacher who has a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset when it comes to their students, yes. where if the teacher thinks that their students are coming in with whatever level of knowledge and aren't necessarily going to dramatically improve, then that is sort of what happens. And then on the contrary, if the teachers believe that all students have the ability to, to learn and improve, then they're much more likely to do so. And that also reduces the disparity in like the racial disparity in learning. Um, and if you have a teacher who has a growth mindset for their students, which I just thought was wild, but it's definitely something I've seen in my teachers as well. I think. That makes sense. No, I, I think it's funny because when you're a kid, right, you don't, I didn't necessarily, I definitely didn't have that terminology or anything to describe right. it, but that was a clear difference. So for example, I might've been good at biology, but the reason I leaned on that was because I was very, very, very insecure about um, my math skills. And that started in middle school when I basically struggled with it the first time. And you know, I'm, I know my teachers were handling a lot and I'm sure doing their best. Um, but I felt highly discouraged. It was, I was certainly not fostered in a growth mindset way in terms of math in middle right. school and um, in high school a little bit. But I mean, you know, I might be a PhD student at Stanford now, but I got like 70s on the state exams uh, mm -hmm. in high school for trigonometry, for algebra. And I wouldn't even say, oh, I'm bad at these things, but I used to like identify as somebody that couldn't do math. And I always secretly feared that it would preclude me from being a scientist, but yeah. I realized that a lot of it was a myth and it does go back to what you're talking about, which is this growth mindset thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, it was paralyzing fear. And so I, yeah, I really, I really understand that because it also felt like, oh, if you're good at, you know, if you're good at science, you have to be good at math. It can't be both. Right, right. And that's not true. And also, what does good at math exactly mean? For research, I'm not doing anything similar to what was on the New York State Regents. Right, exactly. Out. I'm not using calculus right now. <laughs> You're not? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I feel like I had a similar thing when, it, when thinking about chemistry, where I never considered myself to, like in high school, this is right, I was deciding whether or not to take AP chem. And mm -hmm. I just thought I was a bad chemist. And I was really afraid that I wasn't going to be good and that I was going to fail. And I was so close to just not doing it and not challenging myself until I had a teacher who really believed in me and was like, you can do this. You might be hard at the beginning, but I promise you, you can learn this and you can do it. And so it, that encouragement along the way of someone being there to support you and make you feel like you can do it, even if it's hard, was just huge in my experience. That's so, it's really nice to hear that, honestly, like somebody else's experience with that, because it really, it is insane. Like it, you know, when you think back, it's like, oh, it's a few years of your life, but they're so formative because I certainly was fed that kind of narrative. And I'm sure my very caring, honestly, lovely teachers were fed this too of like, well, there's a type of person that has potential and then there isn't. And I, right. I believed in these lines and I thought, well, it's very clear which side I fall on. Right. I didn't think like that was something changeable. That was also just something that, you know, words like brilliant and genius. Like I don't actually subscribe to that um, much at all. Now that I'm in this environment, it's ironic that I don't, I don't really believe in all of that. You know, there's this one type of person and and the other thing, it's uh, a lot of it is, you know, we're, we may be predisposed to be for certain things to come easier for us, but um, we should never preclude ourselves from like being involved in an entire field because we had a very tiny, short, unpleasant experience. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Uh, so Absolutely. thank you for bringing this up. Cause I'm like, yeah, that was a big, that was a big important part of all of this. Yeah. Sometimes I take for granted how influential those things in high school were of just someone either nudging you in the right direction or the, the wrong direction in terms yeah. of how much you believe in yourself and your abilities. Yeah. I had a tough freshman year of college and I think it had a lot to do with that. I would be like, kind of like you said, afraid to even start like mm-hmm. the paralysis of fear of, well, if I touch this thing, maybe it won't work. And then right. it will have some truth revealed to me when in reality, even if you've taken four college chemistry classes and you didn't do great in them, you, that does not necessarily have anything to do with how you may be able to contribute to that field. What all it says is how good are you at absorbing chemistry material very quickly and then being tested on it in a very specific way. Yeah. So nothing yeah. about how much you might be able to contribute or, or research or anything like that. Um, and I just wish that would be made more clear to people. But I think the selectiveness, the competitiveness of college and things is part of what keeps feeding this rhetoric of you're either this type or you're not. But we yeah. know that's not true. true. And you should know that's not true either, audience. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay, great. Now we're talking about college. This is a perfect transition. So Boston University, Um, can you tell us a bit about your experience at BU? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I started out at at BU and I'm very fortunate to say that I chose my major, which was biology with a specialization, which is just a few extra classes in ecology and conservation. I thought, okay, yeah, bio, I've got this. I've got this down. And something that I realized when I got there is, well, I'm no longer like the one that's really great at biology in the room for, yeah, my first semester was good. Um, it was okay. You know, um, I, I struggled a lot. I, I remember the first time I had to put together a, a written lab assignment and just being in my freshman dorm and thinking like, maybe I, maybe I can't do this. And it was simply because I was having trouble with it. Right. Um, which, you know, that's a classic case of oh, you're a gifted kid and all of this. Yeah. <laughs> then I moved to general bio too. And I really was not doing well on, uh, on those exams. And it was, I had a few professors, let's see, for the first semester that were pretty caring. And that was the more ecology focused um, part. But once we got to the cell bio stuff that I had never heard of, I remember we were being taught a very difficult concept, uh, reviewed, quote unquote, though I had never heard of it. And then we had a test on it two days later. Needless to say, I failed that exam, uh, you know, very much failed. And I tried hard. And when I went to office hours, my professor and I said to me, uh, well, if you're having trouble with this, then you should consider dropping the major. Um, And told me, you know, the classes are only going to get harder from here. You're going to have to take organic chem and biochem. Mm -hmm. And I remember that. I remember that conversation so well. He didn't even give me the time of day. He didn't even let me in the room. I, I, I followed him after class because he says, you know, come follow us after office hour uh, and we'll go to office hours. And once I, you know, and I wasn't asking for a grade change or anything like that. I was just right. saying, hey, you know, this is really hard. And I was met with, you know, drop your major. But guess what? I didn't. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I went, I, I said, you know, ah, this is a pain. I know I love science. And so I went home after my freshman year and Seth Molney, who I had mentioned, um, mm-hmm. from Staten Island, I'm very lucky to have known him also through my mom. Um, and I did some volunteer work with him where we were using turtles as environmental indicators of uh, places on Staten Island, specifically water bodies. So mm-hmm. I think it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest landfill in the world um, there. And there's also a, a park that's been created and some ponds. And so I would go there. I mean, we'd spend like 12 hours a day and I'd get there myself on the, on the train because I wasn't really driving yet. Yeah. And... 
I learned to take blood from the turtles. I learned to grab snapping turtles out of um, these, you know, big underwater nets, something that I think I'd be too scared to do now, actually. Yeah, yikes. <laughs> I was 18, though. I snapping don't know. turtles are scary. <laughs> like, I can't believe I did. And I was wearing his waders, which were much too big for me. So, like, a whole funny, there's some great photos from that. But it was, like, great because it was actually my first fieldwork experience, even though I wasn't in the tropics. I was in Staten Island. It was super hot, super humid, super humid. I was out when it was, like, 95 degrees and collecting turtles and I had to take detailed notes and measure them and it was really just the perfect amount of responsibility and really the perfect thing after that tough freshman year of feeling like I couldn't possibly be enough for science watching other people sail through classes with A's they seem to be having all the fun I seem to be just studying and failing <laughs> like it yeah. just felt that way yeah but then after that summer I was like you know what I am detail oriented I love animals I can I can you know I can point out small details I pay attention to my mistakes like maybe I should just keep it, give it a go. And so yeah. uh, that fall of my sophomore year, it was very difficult, but I took um, both the hardest class in college for me, which was biochem and the most enjoyable ones, which were ecology and evolution. Mm-hmm. And it was actually through going to office hours uh, to one of my professors in my evolution class. Um, and I was the over-participator in the class, just hand always raised. I loved mm-hmm. that course. And he, he asked me to join his lab and I didn't even know what that meant, but I said, yes. Yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I didn't know. I was like, you study genetics, but I, ha- I said, I haven't even taken genetics yet. And yeah. he laughed at me. And now I understand why that's funny. Yeah. But in college, you're like, I don't even know what's D. I mean, I knew what DNA was sort of. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> it was a very, he basically, he liked my, my enthusiasm a lot. And I certainly wasn't, I didn't know that a position was open. I didn't know what that meant. Right. But he studied uh, something that always interested me, although a part of it I didn't understand, which was mimicry. So when uh, when an animal evolves to look just like another animal, mm-hmm. and in this case, it was an, a butterfly that evolved to look just like a very toxic butterfly, but mm-hmm. it actually wasn't toxic. Tricky buggers. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I learned some stuff there. I didn't catch many butterflies or anything, but I learned, uh, you know, PCR, some other sequencing techniques. I mm-hmm. I mean, I had a, I had a really, I had a nice experience in that lab. Um, and I, I really, something again to bring up that I really, really liked about working uh, with this person is that he really sh- believes in his students and he let me do risky things. He let me work yeah. with expensive reagents. He was very, very relaxed about any time I made a mistake, which was frequently. And I, I learned that like, you know, it doesn't matter how quote unquote bad I might be doing in my classes. I know how to do research and ultimately research is a job. Taking classes is not. So, so I was like, okay, maybe I'm safe here. Yeah. That's such a good way to put it. I've never thought of it like that before. I I don't think I ever said that either. I just like, I think it showed up now. Yeah. (laughs) It's true though, right? I feel like sometimes there's a correlation between how well you do in classes and how good of a researcher you are. But very often there's absolutely no relationship and you could be phenomenal at research and be struggling in your classes. And like, it shouldn't discourage people from pursuing research opportunities. I totally agree. I mean, I know people that went to Boston University, which is an R1, a big, you know, fancy school for research, especially that um, got into their laboratories and did the most brilliant work with a, you know, with a GPA well below a B you know, I'm talking like a C, C plus GPA. Yeah. Like you said, of course, like to some extent it reflects it. Like you need to be, you need to be somewhat invested in, in your, you know, do things on time and try to pace yourself. But exactly like you said, ultimately, are you good at taking a test in a certain way on this subject? Like right. not by this one person. 
Right. Like, oh yeah, the field's bigger than that. But at the time you think that your professor is the all knowing being of that field and no other truth could exist outside of there. Yeah. Um, and it's so hard when you're, you know, you're young, how are you going to, oh, it's, it's so tough to keep pushing and believing yourself. But I leaned on people a lot. I called my mom a lot and a lot of tears were shed. I'll be honest. Yeah. Uh, but that was the, um, that was actually the semester that I started therapy for the first time. And that really, really helped me. Um, yeah understand that my worth lies in a lot more than a grade I get, or even, you know, even if I dropped out of school, I would still have worth as a human. Yes. Should go without saying, but at the time it didn't. Yeah. It's so easy, I think, to get our identities tied up in the work we do and to just lose the track of all the other things that are going on in our lives. And so when things go poorly in research or work or whatever, it can feel like a reflection of ourselves when that's not true it's just not fair it's like not our fault it's not like a it's not like a reflection of our person that the chemicals didn't interact the way we wanted in our test tubes or whatever you know what i mean exactly Um, or or whatever or the or the test question was written in such a way that you know the answer seemed to be this but it was actually the slightly different thing and it's exactly and two when you're doing something passionate you're about i think i imagine artists um you know and anyone that basically does anything they're passionate about doesn't have to be art or anything um it's, it is, it's wrapped up in your identity. Uh, but I think like, remember, I, something I've, I try to, I, I don't really believe in fate, but something that I try to say to myself anyway, when I'm having a really hard time is like, think of myself when I'm like, just staring at a frog for two hours as an eight year old and just go, you know, you were meant for this. Like, not yeah. in this, like very, this divine type of way, but I'm like, come on. Like, if yeah. you're not going to do this, who's going to do it? Right. <laughs> like, That's if true. You, like, if you're really like, you know, you're, yeah. If you're hesitant about this and you're sitting there like pointing out every six legged animal bug or whatever you see, then like, come on, of course you can do it. (laughs) So you brought up, you started going to therapy at that point. And that's one of the things that I really wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about is generally just mental health in graduate school. And so I think first, if you could start telling us a little bit about your own personal experiences with mental health in grad school, that would be great. Yeah, totally. So, um, I'll start off really quick by just saying that I started off with talk therapy my last two years of college, and it was uh, it was quite helpful. But it started off as thinking that my anxiety, which I had started to have um, frequent anxiety attacks, and that was dev or something that I had experienced, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, which is that things weren't just situational. So I would talk through things as though it was like, well, it was actually just this thing I had to get past. Now I'm fine, as opposed yeah. to hey, there's actually something deeper at the root that is not right here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I started to help myself more. So in graduate school, um, I started off um, ne- my first year uh, with, it was kind of atypical. So um, so I started off in the lab of the PI that I had worked for, uh, for two years um, after, after school, after college. Um, and so I'd already known um, Lauren O'Connell pretty well. And I had felt that since I had been in the lab as a technician, I must act as though I am sort of not a first year in graduate school, but that there was more expected of me. Mm -hmm. Um, When in reality, of course, the differences between being a technician and a grad student are huge. Mm -hmm. And so I found myself putting a lot of pressure on myself to you know, I, I really enjoyed the tech life. It was a 40 hour work week and I made sure not to go outside of those bounds, but I had 
again, similar, that sort of, where does it come from mystique of you must be working all the time to really be smart and successful. Right. And I, I adapted that. I, I did all of the, I should be doing this right now. And I actually honored those thoughts and it was not good. I burned out. Um, I think I ended up not being able to do research basically for a few months. I was working like 10 to 12 hours a day, not every day of the week, but like five or six days a week. And I wasn't actually getting all that much done. I was teaching for the first time and I had stopped going to therapy, which was not clever Mm -hmm. to do during a huge change. But I, you know, I had thought, oh, I'm, I'm equipped for this and I need to just focus on work. This is what I need to focus on. But in reality, right, like therapy is a tool that I use that actually helps me both feel better and excel at my work because it's it's so grounding. It grounds your values is the number one thing that therapy does. It puts stuff in perspective. Whoa, that sample that you messed up is not the world, you know, things like that. Right. I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of your work is not a reflection of your worth. Yeah, exactly. There's so much more to life than that. Yeah. And it's hard, you know, we're at a place like, like Stanford where your whole life, it's like only this certain type of person goes to that institution. And even though you're probably thinking, well, you, you know, you went to college, you went to Boston U and yes, but these names like Stanford and Harvard and MIT and the Ivies, they have this connotation to them that, um, that we were fed as, as children, really, that mm-hmm. like, if you are in this club, you are better than <laughs> or something like that. Right. Um, and now I know that that's not true, but uh, basically my first year culminated in going to Ecuador, uh, going to do some field work. Um, you know, I would say uh, we had one difficult team member, which probably didn't help things, but um, I was very lucky to be there with my lab mate and some other supportive people. But despite that, um, there'd been some basically mental demons that I had not really conquered and I'd certainly not addressed because I had stopped going to therapy for that year. And so my one month field trip for me turned into a 10 day field trip because my anxiety was kind of out of control. I I was so out of control that I, I could not, uh, you know, I, I couldn't eat properly mm-hmm. um, and I was not getting sleep. And I, I was worried that it was going to be, besides being very unpleasant, I was worried that I was going to hurt myself because there are snakes where we go. And if you step yeah. on a snake uh, because you're not paying attention, you know, that could be really, really, really grave. <laughs> it could yeah. Be yeah. And so yeah. I thought, you know, it's the safest move for me and my team if I leave. And so it was really hard. You know, I, I, felt, the, I felt that I had a... I had kind of disappointed people. It was a very couple of very difficult conversations with my PI, but ultimately it's like the best decision I've, I've ever made for myself. That's like a personal one. Um, and I thought people would judge me and all the stuff when I came back, but everyone just had open arms and asked if I was okay. And nobody really talked about it again or judged me. Nobody, it was amazing. I was like, oh yeah, I have an amazing community here and there is nothing to be scared of, but it's yeah. be good to be true, right? Yeah, I do feel like grad students now, it seems like relative to potentially PIs or whatever, grad students are much more accepting and appreciative of the fact that mental health plays such a large toll in all of our lives and that it is a real thing that we need to take into consideration and act upon in order to have a healthy and successful life. And, you know, we're not just robots who can go to the field and catch frogs and, you know, live in a stressful environment and just continue on with our lives. You know, like, I think people are much more supportive now, which, I mean, obviously it's great that you felt that way when you were telling people. No, but you're, I mean, you're right though, right? This is the thing is that I think something crazy is, you know, when I started research, it was 
it was 2012 actually and now it's 2020 and the truth is that even though that's not really that much time I do think that the narrative around mental health has changed a lot and it's not the same as it as it was even eight years ago yeah and so something too that I wanted to mention which um I would say it's it was it's important to talk about you know after graduation I went to Panama got this, you know, internship at the Smithsonian. The most helpful thing about that was not actually, right, and that was post-college uh, graduation pre-technicianship. Um, the most important thing about that was not actually all the science I learned, but was interacting with all of these other established scientists there, whether they were professors or graduate students or postdocs. And I saw these people and I realized they're all human. They're all human. They all struggle with things. They're not these inapproachable, like, TV geniuses that you kind of see advertised to you as what a yeah. real scientist is, right? Like yeah. they're real scientists, nice people. And a lot of them, you know, really honored their values, spent lots of time with their families, took off weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some didn't, and that is fine. Fieldwork varies, but it was there that I realized like, oh, I don't have to be amazing at everything and I can, and I can still pursue research. So basically that community let me know that, you know, cause I, you know, I dealt with some anxiety there too. And I had yeah. to lean on people, right. Yeah. My, my, uh, my partner was living in Boston while I was there. And so I made friends, I survived and it was just remarkable because I also learned that other people have lots of anxiety struggles and things like this. And it's not just me. And that's when I started to feel that the door to mental health and talking about it uh, was actually open <laughs> and up for yeah. grabs. So one of the things that we've been talking about is how, you know, over the past eight or so or whatever years that you and I have been doing research, we've seen this sort of shift in the way that people think about and talk about mental health. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about, in your opinion, what sorts of things do you see like institutions or people like PIs or whatever doing well when it comes to graduate student mental health? and promoting mental health amongst grad students? I think this is a great question. So one of the things I think that is the most important is that I think taking time off is not something that's quite as taboo anymore to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I speak to my friends that are in other labs, they're aware of either a policy or a lack of a policy in the lab, you know, a loose one regarding taking time off. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the past, I have seen others work in labs where you know, time off wasn't really spoken about. And if you requested it, you weren't really sure what you were going to get or if it was reasonable to request it. I mean, to the point where even folks that had family emergencies were not really sure if it was acceptable for them to ask for time off or to leave. And like I said, I think that's evident. So letting your students know that they are expected to take time off. It's not a freebie. It's not... You're not cutting corners. You're just, you know, that's your humanity that you need to um, honor. And... So that's a big one. And I would say uh, normalizing failure has been uh, helpful. So my PI, for example, has talked to me about the times that, you know, she has messed up experiments in lab and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, That's been important. And also um, something that I don't think, I think it's not even, it's not just Stanford that does it. Other folks do this um, IDP, which is the individual development plan. Mm -hmm. Um, And in it, what it is is it's a it's a uh, it's a one year check in uh, that is you know once a year you and your PI go over the things that you know you feel that you did strongly this year maybe things that need improvement but the part of this that I'm very impressed by is a required component of it is asking what you're doing to keep yourself well and keep yourself occupied outside of work yeah and seeing that for me 
despite all of, you know, the wonderful people I've met and a, a lot of what I've heard, you know, mental health is acceptable to talk about and acknowledge, I still felt very cagey around the subject. So seeing it on that piece of paper that I have to fill out every year as like, hey, it's actually part of the requirement to stay yeah. a well-rounded human. I mean, yeah. right, we don't do it for the obligation, but knowing that that was encouraged really helped me go like, oh yeah, I better be investing my time in some other stuff because it's important. Yeah. And I also think personally that, you know, people like you who are talking openly about their mental health and the mental health issues and struggles that they've gone through in their time is huge too, because it makes other people feel like their experiences are normal and worth talking about and that they shouldn't be ashamed to have anxiety or depression or anything that's going on in graduate school or otherwise, even if you're not in graduate school. Totally. Well, something that I, I, you know, I I really should have mentioned too was, well, I did, I guess I did mention it, but that wonderful community. So even before Ecuador and all of that, I was very lucky to um, talk to friends both here in graduate school and uh, and elsewhere who were dealing with similar stressors. And I really felt not alone. I would say I was for sure the first person, um, I think, to sort of say in a group message, like, does anyone else feel like they have no idea what's going on? You know, that kind of thing. And even though that felt weird and like, I at that point felt like, well, what do I have to lose? You know, and it turned out that a lot of other people were feeling that way. And yeah. I think that we all developed the system of checking on one another, um, especially in the cohort. And that is that is a really nice thing because even though you have this community, you know, working on your very own project can be kind of isolating. And it's so easy to just, just look at someone and assume how they're doing when in reality, right? You have no idea. Yeah. So definitely just being open and taking those risks that are like, yeah, somebody might judge me here, but do they really have a right to? No. Okay, so are there things then, so we've talked about strategies and things that work well for promoting mental health. Are there things that you wish that you would see more of in graduate programs to further promote student mental health? Yeah, I think a lot of the the anxiety comes from not understanding where our power lies. And a, a big part of that is, I know this might be kind of, would be kind of uh, alarming or I don't know, for a PI to say it, but reminding them that, you know, you're working under them, they are guiding you, but you do not work for them as an employee. It's not quite like that. You're not doing tasks for them. You are being guided on your PhD. And basically it needs to be better communicated to students that they are in control of how they're spending their time and they're entitled to help. But that ultimately, like, if you need to go to the doctor, you need to go to the bank, you need to mail something that's on you to make your schedule. Mm-hmm. So basically like clearing up expectations and uh, you know, I know some folks might not agree with this, but uh, when an authority figure has been vulnerable with me about um, their worries, doesn't have to be, you know, of course people should not be disclosing their health information if they're not comfortable with it. Um, but even just talking about a brief experience saying, hey, you know, I've been to therapy before too, or, yeah. uh, or I have a close friend that, you know, deals with um, mental health issues, that is very validating. It makes the student feel less like an alien and reminding them that, uh, you know, mental health troubles is not equal to weakness in, in any way. Mm-hmm. It's simply, you know, variation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I think one thing that we've talked about that encompasses a lot of the things that we've been talking about in relation to mental health is general sort of mentorship from PIs, you know, I think that can play such a huge role and something that I know graduate students in our department are really hoping that more and more PIs, if any PIs out there listening to this, (laughs) more and more PIs will (laughs) engage in in mentorship training and sort of better understanding how to 
make their graduate students not feel I don't know so like much isolated yeah the pressure right yeah I think like you bring up a good point like like you said if any PIs are listening I think it sounds you know we, we talk about small talk oh hey how are you like it's not important um but in a professional context especially when there's power dynamic I think it's very important because when my PI asks how I'm doing not how's my work going how are you doing mm-hmm. I know that she is asking me how I'm feeling um like mentally physically etc and I yeah. think by, by starting a conversation, especially if you haven't met with your student in a long time, using that, it shows that you value their well-being over, like, what they're producing. Right. Uh, which, you know, we, 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 are, we are entitled to that, even if it doesn't always feel that way. So, like, that could be something, that's something that is simple but really helpful, like, genuinely asking, how are you doing? And also acknowledging the fact that, you know, in a sense, it might seem more intuitive to treat the work environment, especially the research environment, like a vacuum, like only research and, you know, research conversations. Life is separate. Life is separate. Yeah. But the truth is, of course, we can't function that way. And right. like you said, our research and things are affected by current events, especially when there's, you know, a global pandemic going on. Yeah. Uh, just little things like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I think that like, like even just acknowledging the current events is a, is a huge one because as we know, certain students are going to be, you know, disproportionately affected by, yeah. uh, you know, current events, whatever that may be, whether it's Black Lives Matter movement or um, family members that are susceptible or suffering from COVID, mm-hmm. you know, there's lots of things out there, but acknowledging the humanity of us is so appreciated. Yeah. A couple more questions for you. Of course. So, what advice would you give to someone who's interested in pursuing a career in science? So the first thing I'd say is it depends on what stage in education you are. I would say um, if you're in high school, something I, I wish I had done, I, I didn't understand. So actually any level, high school, college, is if you know of somebody out there, uh, you know, it's probably um, easier if they live close to you, but it doesn't have to be the case, that, and you find their work interesting, write to them. Even if you just want to have a conversation and say like, how did you get here? How do you, you know, how did you get to studying turtles for a living or something like that? Yeah. Um, That can be so helpful and that those people can frequently point you to other resources and other people. And I know it's so, so scary and feels like, it feels like, oh, this person doesn't owe it to me to answer, but actually they do because basically I think to keep in mind is that the two main things, number one is everybody that is an expert on anything had at one point never heard of that subject mm-hmm. at all. Didn't know it existed. The other thing is that, um, you know, every professor or researcher or whoever that you admire, doctor could be anything, um, they have all had people help them too. They've all gotten their positions because of letters of recommendations, because right. of connections, because of helpful conversations they have had. And so most people understand this and will want to help you. And the people that don't answer or tell you that they don't have time or they're unwilling to help you, you know, if they do it in a not gracious way, um, you know, that might not be somebody that you want to work with anyway. Yeah. So I think feeling out your, feeling out your people uh, in terms of how they treat you as a person, but also just going out there and emailing them. Yeah. Don't be afraid to double email. Hi, I realize you're very busy and you might've missed this. There's not, there's no harm in that. The email's not going to hurt them. It's not going to hurt them. If they really don't want to answer you, they won't. Yeah. Um, Which is fine. Yeah. And also just on to the next person. Yeah. And you know what I say too about classes? I've gotten lots and lots of amazing um, experience and knowledge from courses in high school and college, but ultimately to me, class is, um, you know, passing classes, your GPA, all of this is part of a 
it's sort of a formality and it's more of a game than a reflection of your intelligence or capabilities as a researcher. And I really do know of countless people who struggled with their coursework who are just like really flying high in research now. Mm -hmm. um, so don't give up. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nora. This of has course. Been so awesome. Yeah, um, it's so nice. If anyone listening wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? On yeah. Twitter, email, whatever you're willing to sure. share. Anything. So, so Twitter is, is good for sure. People are not messaging me there much, so I would definitely see it. Um, that's <laughs> just at Nora Moskowitz, I believe, which is my first and last name, hopefully on the episode notes or something. Yep, yep. I'll put um, and, uh, uh, and my email, which is, um, I'll just spell it out for you, which is uh, N-O-R-A-M-O-S-K at stanford.edu. Um, that's my email. And like I said, Twitter. Uh, I would love to talk to folks. It doesn't matter about about what, if it's about mental health, if it's just about um, applying to graduate school, if it's not about going into academia at all, uh, I would be very happy to talk to anybody. Thanks again to Nora for being here today to tell us her story and for being open and honest about her mental health struggles. The more that people feel comfortable sharing like this, the less stigma there will be around mental health. So seriously, a huge thank you to Nora for doing this. And thank you to all of you for listening. I hope you're enjoying the episodes. And if you are, I would love it if you could recommend the show to a friend or to anyone else who you think might enjoy hearing these sorts of science origin stories. Our next episode will be coming out on New Year's Day. So stay tuned for that. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. In the meantime, please feel free to contact us by our email, which is rootstostempodcast at gmail.com or on our website, rootstostempodcast.com. Happy holidays, everyone.